0: I too. Veronic You
1: must remember those words. Gordon sat! Nice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly And as always, I'm joined by Julian Darius Julian, how are
2: you doing? You okay? I'm great! I'm just fine! And this capitalist excess, is serving me fantastically What about you? <laughs> I am
1: wonderful, thank you very much I'm doing great And, uh, yeah I think, well, having watched this film I feel like we both should be some, uh, committed to see some sort of a Some sort of institution Um Today we are going to be finishing off um, well Sort of like a, the retrospective of the, the Terry Gilliam uh, run um, By the time you listen to this You'll be listening to the two retro episodes That were, uh, Julian and I did originally for 20th Century Geek uh, In which we looked at Terry Gilliam's imagination trilogy Or his age trilogy Which was uh, Time Bandits, Brazil uh, And the uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen And so today we're going to be topping off with another Sci fi Terry Gilliam film, uh, 12 Monkeys from 1995. Uh, and before we get into it, but so, Julian, what's your first what made you, did you cross paths with this film initially, and what are your first thoughts?
2: I don't remember if I saw this in theaters, but I certainly saw it soon after. Um, and I liked it then, and I think I like it even better now. Mm. What about you?
1: Yeah, it's one of those I remember this coming out, uh, mainly because of the poster. Um, and weirdly, because well, not weirdly. I suppose, I know this because it came out the same year as Die Hard 3, um, Die Hard of the Vengeance, and I was on a bit of a Bruce Willis kick at the time and going, like, Oh man, I've really got to go see 12 Monkeys and not seeing it till it came out on video, and then thinking, This isn't what I expected, mm. <laughs> um, but kind of liking it, um, and I, I should say, coming back to it now, um, I do like it, I do think it's a very different film. Um, not entirely sure And I'm interested to talk about this It achieves what I think Terry Gilliam Wanted it to achieve And oddly I think Terry Gilliam is a bit of a uh, Detriment To this film mm. um, But we should get into that,
2: uh, well, that I disagree it, we'll, we'll have a sparkling conversation about oh. it Um do you do you want to uh, do the plot summary? Actually, do you want plot?
1: do you want me to? No, give no, it a I've, show? I've got I've got the plot right here. I've actually I've written this out. I think it makes sense. So twelve monkeys. Uh, in 1990, a confused man stating his name is James Cole, Bruce Willis, is committed to a psychiatric hospital. He is claiming to know the future and that in 1997 a virus is released that kills five billion people and drives the rest below the surface to live. His doctor, Catherine Rail, Madeline Stowe, believes he is delusional. Fellow patient Jeffrey Goines, Brad Pitt, is more convinced. He believes, uh, sorry, Cole believes he is from the the year 2035 and the human race is studying the surface world for signs of the virus. They have also discovered a crude form of time travel, which is why he is in 1990, not 1997. Cole vanishes from a locked room, only to reappear in 1997. He confronts Dr Rayleigh and kidnaps her to help him look for the army of the 12 monkeys who he believes releases the virus. Steadily Dr Rayleigh believes Cole's story and helps him track them down. Eventually they find them and find they have a plan led by Goines. However this turns out to be a plan to release animals from a zoo not a virus. But then they get more information about a scientist at an airport. When they reach the airport Cole is given a gun by another traveller from the future Cole rushes to confront and kill the scientist, but is shot as he makes the attempt. In the same moment, a young James Cole sees a man gunned down in an airport. So there, you go, gets a rough plot. I tried to sort of. There's more to talk about the whole thing, but
2: very concise. I
1: have tried to keep it concise because I, 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 <laughs> I have rambled in previous ones. Uh, so yeah, let's start. Let's start this. And so, overall impressions then of, of Twelve Monkeys.
2: I think this is a masterpiece. Um, I'm very taken with it.
1: Mm.
2: I I think that it it is uh, it has those Gilliam touches. I think the depiction of the future is wonderful. It looks like something out of Delicatessen instead of any American movie. It looks very sort of you know French uh, used future sort of weird stuff. You know I can't imagine how, you know, they got a, a an American film company to, to finance this and put this out. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Brad, Brad Pitt seems a, maybe a little over the top um, and, and maybe a little insens- insensitive in the depiction of mental illness. But outside of that, it's still a memorable performance. Um, I think everybody's quite good and I quite love the depiction of time travel. Mm-hmm. We've talked about sort of, you know, changing time and causality loops and things like this. And this is definitely a deterministic future
0: mm-hmm.
2: um that manages to still be funny, you know, especially in the Gilliam moments. Mm. And and also um touching to me. You know, also um, you know, I think the to me the this is like Julian's version of what I wanted Looper to be. <laughs> Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> the, this is the better bruce willis time travel film mm. um no i agree i i, I mentioned that I feel, you know i feel that Gear limited is a detriment it's not a massive thing um i really enjoyed this film i thought it was fantastic uh I'll come back to watch it um i actually think brad pitts is is good mm. his goodness i think like you say there's a lot of energy going on yeah it's one of those you know there's there's performances of mental health which is required for the film but is clearly not accurate to any sort of you know um is it is the dcm or dsm sort of five you know the sort of i don't think you could actually categorize him in any way (laughs) Uh, but it's good and he he gives a strong performance um and and i actually think that like i say with bruce willis in this um gives you know it's it's this is when Bruce actually cared and gave good performances and and mm-hmm. did you know worked hard at these things. And I, I really enjoy him in this. Um and I you do feel for him. This confusion. And he says about this sort of like this duality, this sort of like you know that he has of his brain. He's like, Well, I think this is what's happening to me, but I I'm not even sure at this point. Um uh but you my problem is that future you mentioned. Um, because th- this is definitely a film of two sort of threads: um, the present or the nineties, the sort of you know the, the modern, which we you call it, um, is is as you would expect. There's very little Gilliam in there. Like the the psychiatric hospital at the beginning is a little bit like it. Um, but all of that seems to obviously play into this idea of the future being delusional. And is he actually still in the hospital and all this other stuff? But the future is so Brazil, or like mm. almost Brazil, that I'm like, you t- <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't quite gel with this this 90s part. Like it works in Brazil because that's the world, that's the experience, it's the satire, and it's, it's fantastic. But I don't. It, it it's 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 little things that feel like Gilliam touches. Um, like when he's in the future and you have that that orb, the big ball with the many little TV screens on it, or for some reason in front of them they have those sort of like magnifying screen things just sat there, and they're all evident in other mm. Gilliam things whenever he has those sort of futuristic places it's like, what point do they serve? <laughs> you know,
2: it's like... Yeah, I found myself kind of wondering the same thing about, you know, the magnifying feel. I mean, obviously it's being looked through from Bruce Willis's perspective, that the mm. camera is always following Bruce Willis. And so what we see is sort of the giant eye, and that becomes a sort of sigil, a kind of repeated motif. I, I find that even more... I find that much more odd sort of on that uh, that orb uh, mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, why would you choose to display this? I mean, that's very strange to me. But I would say, like, the strangest bit is that he at one point he wakes up in the future and you're staring at a painting what you don't know is a painting sort of how to yes. look. And then all of scientists sing a song to him. Yeah. Um, but... And it's very Gilliam, but yes. it also strikes me as very as within the bounds of realism that, you know, in this messed up future, they would think this painting is going to be calming and we know he likes this song. And there's something off about that future. Um, and and of course, that's kind of, you know, there's also the sort of like voice where it's like, uh, is, is he crazy or is he not? Mm. And ultimately, he's not. But um, that is also sort of Gilliam but again within for me the bounds of uh, of realism and works with the theme of the film so for me that stuff there are a few f- you know uh, finesses there. Uh, I mean I don't know why they have to interrogate him on an on an elevated chair you know <laughs> but it's cool um
1: you know Th- things like that. I was that, that the elevated chair, like I could give myself justifications because they do say that he's been a, a violent criminal. Like they say, oh, he has tendencies of violence. So they bolt him into a chair and raise it up. And I'm like, okay, that means he can't attack them. So, like, it, in my head, I'm like, I've got, I've got a reason for that. But then, like you say, when he wakes up in the hospital bed and there's a painting, and then they all sort of start, it's the way it's shot as well, like they all lean in and start singing the song. And they said, oh, well, you were talking in your sleep that you like, you know, we hear that, or your vile say that you like this song, and so we were singing it to you. Um, that is the oddest moment, and it's it, that is one of the ones I find incredibly jarring because then it's sort of that you know they're saying about it. It's because also that 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 collection or chorus, whatever you want to call it, of uh scientists they act almost like um you know they're like they almost finish each other's sentences, and they are sort of like there's like a, they're like a chorus, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And that's very Gilliam as well. Like I'd you know, they sort of act as almost like the Gilliam um grotesques of the future. <laughs> um and so I, I find that, yeah, that that whole bit feels weird. Like I said, the future is off, but like it it's what 40 years between the film and this future. Um and I know they're underground. It's it's one of these things where you sort of go, right? They were clearly clever enough and have the ability to go underground save two billion people and create this system of, of living underground yet they've got this weirdness going on like it feels slightly disjointed and again like i'm fine with it in the sense of like you know i know it's terry gilliam i'm fully expecting something like this in the film not a problem but it's like <laughs> does it does it need that level of weirdness for that to work
2: I don't think it does, but I, it still doesn't bother me. I mean, but, I think you're right that it's jarring. And my first impression is sort of, this is jarring. This is Gary Gilliam. <laughs> but then but then I sort of calm down about it. And and even within a realistic f- film that doesn't have Gilliam touches, um, jarring isn't necessarily a bad word. word. Mm. I mean, time travel, you mm. know, I mean, it's pretty jarring to be like, oh, I guess Bruce Willis is in World War One. But that we pardon because it's time travel. Um, I'm willing to pardon the Gilliam weirdness about this future in the sense that we don't see that much of the future. Um, I think it's true that we don't have an idea of really how that future operates. It's Mm. clear that they don't have like good food and good air and, and, and whatnot. But and that there's a sort of weird social hierarchy going on in which people are kept in cages as prisoners and volunteer when they didn't volunteer uh you know which is very sort of kafka-esque um but uh i i sort of feel like because we don't see so much of it i can pardon those excesses and you know it seems like they're living underground we find out that one of these scientists at the end in this clever little twist is uh, on the plane and says she's an insurance. So it's clear, like, (laughs) these are not actually experts. You know, (laughs) they're sort of... Now, somebody has invented time travel, right? Uh, At least a crude, Mm. Gilliam-esque form of time travel, which I think is really cool the way it's shown and presented. But I agree that it's hard for me to really imagine what that future world it's like, or it's society, or it's level of technology. But I guess because we see so little of it, I'm able to kind of part in that, whereas it bothers me more in, like, Brazil, where I think, you know, I don't understand quite how the society works, or why you have dreams of a flying guy and a Mm. repairman who's a terrorist, and that seems more really out there, whereas here, Gilliam seems much more restrained.
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, the thing is, he can be out there with, with Brazil because it's all of a piece. Like, it all exists in the same thing. I think he has to be more restrained in this because he has the the 90s piece where if he was to go, you know, full Gilliam across the whole thing, like, you, the story wouldn't work, would it? Because, the, the, I mean, the, the crux of the first, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes is um do you do you believe you know you can watch the first 40 minutes and if you were to stop it there before you get to the end you could easily have a conversation of like is this all in bruce willis's head or yes or no and i think you could probably you could easily find justification for each um in on the screen it's only sort of after he vanishes i think from 1990 that you sort of have this thing of oh no there's definitely something to this like it's clearly that that, you know this isn't um uh this this isn't a mental mentally ill person sort of like with delusions of this future however and i know that the sort of has to be there as part of the character but gilliam keeps trying to drop this idea of like oh is it or isn't it is it or isn't it like there are scenes where they're still trying to play that out you know well
2: no you've answered this question (laughs) twice um yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, at the same time, I kind of find those scenes later in the movie as more about Bruce Willis's struggle. Um, you know, there's a way in which those scenes kind of those questions shift from doubts about the world that the movie is presenting and to uh, as sort of character struggle of mm. the doctor believing in Bruce Willis. And and obviously, by the third trip through time, Bruce Willis is convinced it's all a, a, a delusion. And she uh, and Bruce Willis have utterly switched roles. And I, as, as somebody who, you know, struggles with depression and, and, you know, with issues like this, I identify with this idea of sort of knowing that things are not fully true and having to mm. say they're not. And yet, in a time travel movie or most sci-fi movies uh you know the these are unrealistic things that happen and usually it's like um yeah i'm an alien right i mean you know okay fine other people become convinced early on and you move on with the plot here she becomes convinced over time Mm -hmm. um correctly and i think it's done pretty well Mm. um if anything, I, I mean, if anything, that bothers me a little more that the ants that she becomes such a convert, uh, that bothers me a little more than what you're saying about sort of like is he crazy or isn't he persisting? The way that she like, okay, we found the bullet. The bullet is sort of the ultimate proof, right? It was an, an antique. It's from World War One, and he predicted this boy in the barn, but he's quite convinced, convincing that uh, yeah, he you know, when he explains to her, I don't know maybe I saw the same movie as that boy Mm -hmm. did, right? That's quite a rational explanation, you know and and the doctor winds up saying to her colleague um, we're the new religion we decide who's crazy well that's an argument of Foucault it's, you know, it's not really an argument that most psychiatrists will make uh, at least that flippantly. No, uh,
1: weirdly, I see. I, I see. I like her conversion to the tr- to to the truth, or to the to the point of view that it's not a delusion, that it is real. Um, and uh, I like this point. You you say that you know it's not a it's not an argument that psychologists or psychiatrists will make this idea. Of, no, because it will put them out of a job. <laughs> admitting that, but there is a thing about they are that line of defense that determine you know. You could say that if you want to take that argument that well, they're the person that determines what's right, normal and not normal. Or mm-hmm. however, I would say that it is being put to good use, like you know, people are getting help and support, which is which is what's needed rather than being abandoned to sort of like you know, some sort of uh, uh you know, institute where they're just thrown to be sort of gawked at some bedlam to be gawked at by the rich. Um, but. I like this idea, like say so it's the little things, like there's this constant sort of like there's a build-up of like things for her. Um, but also it's it's the fact that she they say to it she's she has bought into her own Cassandra theory. Mm. So it's the fact that like she's already one foot in it anyway. It's not like she's a fully it's not like it's not a full 180. Like she's already a couple of degrees <laughs> go in that direction. Because she has that she obviously gives that uh, the, the lecture she gives where she talks about these people that have appeared and give this sort of ominous um, prophecy about a plague or disease. And one of the ones she gives is of a guy in World War One um, who uh, we see has, was um, Bruce Willis is sort of like not, well, not quite a cellmate. He was in the cell next door um and he got flung back to world war one and he managed to get a uniform and he got injured but he makes all these provocations about 1997 as bruce willis is doing and she's stood at all this and you know in all honesty if you see pictures of world war one there's a picture of this guy being carried away and there's a naked bruce willis sort of reaching out and it's in the trenches and it's, so it looks like it's part of the hospital like you would probably just just go yeah it was a messed up time. There may well mm-hmm. have been a naked bald man crawling around in the mud. Like it would probably, you'd probably have to, you'd probably go, well, that's crazy, and then move past it because that's not what you're studying. But that's, to me, that is the final sort of nail in the coffin for her mm-hmm. is you have the bullet. She then gets the story. And she, cause she's like you say, she's saying to him, You, you you know, you guessed this was a hoax. This kid was in the barn the whole time. And, so on and so forth, and that's when he's going well, no, you know, there's other reasons for this, and that's when she runs off and she she pulls all of her research <laughs> down at the wall. And she finds that photo, and it's clearly Bruce Willis in the trenches in 1914, and that's the deciding factor when she's like, mm. oh no, like this is true. Like I have in black and white, I have evidence of time travel now, um, and so she makes she sort of fills the gaps in herself at that point with trust, where she's like, well, if that's true. I'm going to take it at the word that the other things are true as well.
2: Um, Well, and she's also seen, well, not seen, but Bruce Willis has disappeared in the water just before he was captured. So, but you're right. You're right about that, that photo. Um, I do think that her lecture at the beginning is a, is a little, um, you know, easy. Uh, You know, it's always like, but it's better than other films, right? Like Mm. in, in a Michael Bay film, It would be like, you know, throughout history, man has talked about Arthur. And here are these photos of, you know, Arthur with Transformers. And and it's like, how did you not put this together? How do you have (laughs) all of the evidence right in front of you? She does seem to have an awful lot of cherry-picked evidence that fits, you know. I mean, whereas there are actual people who were crazy and said other things, Mm which— You know, doesn't get preserved, and I think there is a danger of that in these movies, encouraging us to sort of a, a kind of subjectivity that, well, you know, maybe Bill Gates is putting microchips in the in the in the vaccine, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do quite. To me, that whole like, I, you're right that it is it is convincing. I think it's done well. Mm. All the, I'm, I'm quibbling but um, it builds up is the point. Like it's not yeah. like, a switch. It
1: builds and builds. And there's moments that she sort of backtracks, then she goes forward and stuff like that. So
2: um, yeah, no, I, I like the way it builds for her. But, and I, and I like the thing about the Cassandra complex because it, you know, to me, you're right. That I never occurred to me that yes, that would help her to be ready to receive the truth. It's used mostly it's used at the end of the film as a way of explaining why she would be crazy and sympathize Mm. with her kidnapper, which is another thing that happens, right? So in in these kinds of movies, what you want is a convincing case both ways, right? At least for the general public. Um, And that, I think that's certainly here. I think it's well done in that respect. Mm. No, I'd agree with that. I
1: think, you know, um, it helps that the performances are good. Um, I, I think that one of the things I like watching this film as well is how well it all slots together. Like, this is a film that requires a pinboard and lots of red string. Like, um, and then I was starting to. See, I'm
2: sure this things I've. Like You've me. seen my bedroom wall, haven't you? Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you started. Yeah, so you started with other time travel films and just slowly keep moving on.
2: <laughs> um. Well, you know. I, we haven't even talked about that that one character who keeps appearing in the background of all these time traveling films as if there's somebody from the future <laughs> sending us a message. But I won't go into that now.
1: We'll do that as another bonus episode. Um, no, but you, you, we talk about the character turn up. One of the things that's interesting about this is there's a note that uh, um, Bruce Willis hits on a point at the end when he, when he meets up with um, Goins, Jeffrey Goins, again later on. And he's like, uh basically says, You gave me the idea for the twelve monkeys. For the army of the twelve monkeys. Like, you said it. Like, I hadn't thought about that. Like you said, you know, in his in his wacky kind of crazy words, like, well, that was your idea. And you you sort of it was a germ that you started in my brain and sort of thing. And that's when Bruce Willis is like, Christ, I killed five billion people. Mm-hmm. Like it's my fault. Like I put this, I put this idea out there. And then you get into that that bootstrap paradox, don't you? Like, well, Bruce Willis knows of it because it happened, but it happened because he started the idea. So you get this sort of, like, round and round. But then even in in true Gilliam fashion, that rug is then pulled, you know, because you you find that the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, it's uh, Jeffrey Goines and those eco-warriors. And I remember the 90s for eco-warriors way more they don't seem to exist as much anymore but like people like you know change themselves out tr- there. <laughs> people chaining themselves to trees and letting penguins go free and all this other the stuff that um didn't really go anywhere but
2: well i mean i think it, i think it's morphed into other things i think what's funny about that is i you know i was sympathetic to those issues before then but I was an ardent meat eater. I love my lamb and the yeah. Uh, and yeah. now I'm a vegan and I'm like, you know, yeah, my, my problem with letting animals loose from the zoo is they were raised in captivity and you know, they're <laughs> so going to die dying. on the street. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you want to, you know, dynamite, a whaling ship, you know, yeah, you're probably helping us. The mm. only thing I worry about is does the oil spill in the ocean, it but it means, yeah. you know, um, Yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt is a little bit of a enfant terrible, you know, sort of out to make trouble, but um, yeah, I mean, if anything, I feel like I've evolved a lot closer to uh, (laughs) this film's uh, eco-warrior attitude. Which is definitely there,
1: but there's also an argument to say, like, you know, it's not really um, like that that the idea would have come from eventually, eventually sort of thing, possibly, but as we see, Goines isn't really being driven by a pure altruistic eco uh, agenda. He just wants to get at his dad, played by Christopher Plummer. So you, you keep getting these like rugs pulled, and then it's obviously at the end we find out that it isn't a virus; it is them just setting animals free from the zoo. Twelve monkeys, we did it. It's all in. Is it Philadelphia? It is, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: At the end. Um, however, you, you, this the. Um, I can't remember the actor's name now but I know from many of the films. But you you do get the other scientist that works with Christopher Plummer who is the one that releases the virus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but then when you look at all the information that he's received, he was at the lecture. Mm-hmm. Um he is there he obviously knows Goins because he's he's met him through Christopher Plummer so he's heard this date repeatedly of 1997. Is it 7 or 6? Um I may be wrong actually I have to check. Um I think like 1996. Said, yeah. So there's going to be this. Okay. So the virus is going to be released in 96. So he, he's heard this date repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, it's almost like he is fulfilling this prophecy that he has been told. Mm hmm. But he's only been told it because it happened in 1996. So you do actually get the bootstrap par- paradox, but mm-hmm. it's not the one that Bruce Willis thinks he has instigated. And in fact, it's his, it's his friend from 1914 that has actually instigated it because that's the information that, that is used in the lecture that mm-hmm. is there, is, and so on and so forth. So there's I'm going in that sort of crazy conspiracy theory thing, but you start to connect the dots in this film and you go, oh man, this is really, like, really intricate.
2: It is, and yet it's also super simple. I mean, it, oh. it like it's not hard to follow, and mm. uh, I mean, it, you know, it's not clear. I, I think one of the things that's most amazing to me about this film is that it wants to disorient you. Yes. And it has these, you know, sort of flashbacks to Bruce Willis's childhood that you're not sure they're shot with glaring light. You're not sure to what extent it's a dream or just a formative memory. Um you know, there's a woman in it, there's, you know, a guy being shot, and it's all very deliberate, what's shown and what's not, to keep uh, from you, that mm. he's watching his own death. Um, and, and you know, you have sequences in the future that don't show him being sent back in time. You have sequences in the past in three different periods, um, you know, World War One, 1990, and 1996. Only, you never see him literally disappear you know uh quantum leap style and be sent yeah. back into the future so i mean this is a movie that is intentionally very disorienting and yet it's remarkably not hard to follow mm. it, it manages to come together so spectacularly well
1: oh yeah it's it is i mean it, you can follow it as a, and i've just you know as at the beginning i laid out the plot in very concise fashion i think i covered the major points there are other minor points but no it's a very it's a very straightforward film without being linear but all the information is there for you on screen and at no point are you sort of like you know the, and one of so one thing is, is the, the primary cast is very small as well so there's no point at no point do you have a right sorry is that so and so is that the one who was on the scene before is that like, there's none of that like it's literally you've got like probably like four major players um and then, like you say, the surroundings, which, mean, which matter less, but you, you get what they're there for. Um,
2: yeah, so th- I, I found myself thinking of the, the Bigelow film that we did and um, mm. how one of the things we said is that it, it doesn't signal to you what the importance of any scene is. Mm. And this is a movie that does a spectacular job of indicating to you what the importance of every scene is even though those scenes are jumbled, they're out of order, you don't know what they mean, you don't know like what those flashbacks are. But but it wants you to remember, oh yeah, we're doing those that series of flashbacks and you remember what's in there. You may not know whether he's crazy or who what the army of the 12 monkeys is, but you know what the point of every scene is. It gets filed mm. in your mind in a way that you understand, oh, character A did X and the and the question they're dealing with is why. It's very, very good at communicating the pertinent information, even while so much of it remains jumbled in a mystery. And I and I kind of marveled at its ability to do that.
1: Yeah, I think one of the main things to 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 really sort of hammer home is this film, as it jumps about time. But it's still told, at least for Bruce Willis, from Bruce Willis's point of view, he's your primary character in a linear fashion. Like, mm-hmm. it's like weird because we're going to get there next episode, but like, it's like a Doctor Who. Like, yeah, you can jump around time all the time, all you want, but you're still following one character's linear experience. Right. But like, I well, know that the period in 1914 happens after his period in 1990. Like, it's completely makes sense. Like, it you know, it's not mm-hmm. confusing, it's completely there on screen um whilst i know there, there could be other ways of editing this or other films that have done similar things that will just you know make a hash of that I think.
2: yeah and you could edit this i mean it would be a very different film um yeah. and i think a fascinating film but um i think it's it's wise to kind of ground it in one perspective and that also helps with audience identification and for mm. having you know that emotional resonance that winds up working for me quite well at the ending um But you said, like, Doctor Who, and let's get back to this causality loop, Mm -hmm. Um, because I know you're troubled by deterministic (laughs) time travel much more than I am. In Doctor Who, it would be, you know, timey-wimey. It would be like,
0: yeah, nothing
2: really matters. Yeah. Yeah. Here, I mean, you seem to—you have been in the past bothered by—troubled by determinism. Um, Are you troubled by it here? Do you find it— uh, yeah, I think
1: I do. I find I do find determinism. I, I understand it and I and I get it. And especially from a storytelling point, view, I like it. I like it as a narrative um, standpoint. Because the thing is, as well, with sort of determinism, like it, time travel is much more acceptable in a deterministic universe. Because all you're doing is travelling back and forth. Like these events are gonna happen. Nothing you can do about it. If anything, you're going back might actually be the instigator for that event, which you know, it was, had to happen. Much like in this film, or even the Terminator. Like you know, you find out that you know the Terminator. The good
2: Terminator one. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, to the, you know, it's, it's, almost, it's, it's a post-credit scene that is never really noticed. But like at the end of Terminator, as Sarah Connor is being taken away, you find out that it is actually Cyberdyne where the end of it happened. So it's actually the Terminator going back, which instigates. Skynet, kind of, so on and so forth. Um, But with this, like you say, it's all it's all there to be deterministic. There's no way he can change the future. But I'm a bit like uh, Dr. Rayleigh in this, where she's like, I don't like this idea that everything I do has been done before. Like, everything I do is, is done. It's going to be done. It's going to have to be done. It It's, you know, there is, it's happened. It has happened. And therefore it will happen. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, it sort of feels really sort of.
2: deterministic.
1: Yeah. Claustrophobic <laughs> is how I'd feel it. Like there's no variance on, and you know, we've said this about free will, like, you know, um, I could walk out tomorrow and kick a baby, but is that you know, me kicking that baby has always happened. It's always going to happen. And it always has, has happened. Um, <laughs> and so like, you know, it's sort of like, all right. So why did I choose to do it? Like, you know, it's, it's,
2: well, you know, you chose to do it because that I know that would be very out of character for you. Yeah. But the reason why Scott chose to do it is because you were told about this paradox. And so you decided to prove that <laughs> yeah. you could do something so out of character that that wound up producing exactly the paradox that you're troubled by. That's the way this yeah. it works, right? No, exactly. And that's
1: the problem. With, like, not the problem, but that's the thing with it. Like, you know, you can get like a headache. And actually, it's it, weirdly, if you believe that this is, it, if we live in a deterministic universe, that's an argument for time travel. Like, not you know, you get to a point where you're like, if you, if time travel is possible, if I've no, you know, I'm sure the physics behind it is very complicated. But if you were to say like, yeah, you know, if there was to be time travel, and they were like, right, we now can travel in time. You can't change anything because it's always still going to happen. Kennedy's still going to die. Hitler's still going to sort of succeed to, the, to rule Germany, and these things are going to happen. And you still go, What's the point? You know, you, you, you might go back as a. There's this idea, you, people have this grand idea, don't they, of time travel. And you go, Well, you can't affect it. So you should probably just go back as a, 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 like a tourist or as a, an observer okay well in that case then there's no point giving it to the public you know it's sort of like I, I get this point where i'm like well there's no point in time traveling if i can't do anything then what's the point like i can't go back and give me my you know my lottery numbers for for this saturday because right, i'm
2: so, so so fuck it what's the point yeah like,
1: if I mean... i've gone to if i if i'm sitting in the future in this one bedroom flat and thinking like well life went wrong you know, but I know time travel exists. Yeah, but I can't go back and change that because we live in a deterministic universe. Then what's the point?
2: Okay, well, well, two things about that. One is you can still change your future. You can change what you don't know, right? So you feel as if you can change the future. Now, we feel that way. That's not the way we'd look from a, from a five-dimensional perspective, looking down mm-hmm. on us. But we are still making decisions and doing things that, you know, will cause effects on our lives and the people around us. We have not observed that future, and therefore we feel as if we can change it. Um, Or it seems to us as if we can change it. So from our perspective, we can still change our future. You could still go back in time and, you know, make a bet and, you know, get a million dollars and then go back forward and have that million dollars and change your future from your perspective. You just can't go back in time and give that million dollars to your childhood self uh, because you already have seen that childhood self. I mean, so emotionally, I think it it still means your future is indeterminate because you haven't seen into the future. Um, You know, intellectually, you know, to me, wanting it to be different is like, You know, wanting, I you know, if I want to throw something at that wall and damage that wall, I can do it. But I don't get to, but our brains don't think, well, I want to have that effect occur instantly. Mm -hmm. I'm going to change that wall in the future. I can't do it at the present because I can look and see that wall is what it is right now. Taking an action will cause that wall to change in the future. It might be a matter of seconds, but, you know. Or how long it takes me to get the ball or the weapon or whatever. But that wall is what it is. To me, expecting the past to or the future or something that's been changed um, or something that's been observed, right? Uh, much as you know light is acts as a you know particle or a wave until you observe it. But once you observe it, it always was that. And you can Mm. look at other instances in which that were affected by that light. And it always was already a particle or a wave or acting as a particle or wave. In the same way, I can't change that wall right now. But if you and so this is okay. so let's just you you
1: say about being observed. Let's use this wall as an example. I am. So I've determined that that wall needs knocking down. So if me knocking it down now means that that wall doesn't exist in the future. So from this point on, in a linear process, me standing here right now, I will knock it over. So in 10 minutes time, that wall doesn't exist. But it still existed 10 minutes before I decided to take a sledgehammer to it. And it always will exist 10 minutes before I decided to take a sledgehammer to it. So you're saying I couldn't take that sledgehammer back in time, half an hour, and attack that wall then. And knock it down.
2: Right. But I'm also saying you can't do it now. You have to get that sledgehammer mm-hmm. and knock that wall down. You cannot instantaneously affect that wall by observing that wall in place right now. Let's assume you don't know how long it's been in place or what it's going to look like in the future. But you see it right now. Right. You're seeing something that is spatially separate from you. Hmm. You don't assume that you can affect that because that's spatially separate from you. You can observe it. It is manifest. You have evidence for it. You might decide that you want to change it, but you can only change it in the future. That might be seconds in the future, but you yeah. cannot change it right now. In the same way, if you've seen something in the past or in the future, you cannot change that any more than you could that wall that's <laughs> spatially separate from you. But you're talking about it being observed. You talk about the, you know, that that
1: future or our present. You know, let's make a difference. So let, you you mentioned quantum leap, right? Let, let's use that as a sort of a. This is a basis. So you, you know, Doctor Sam Beckett can travel back and forth within his lifetime. Yeah. Um. So my lifetime. So let's, start, start, let's just say 1980 for a nice round number, right? So 1980 to now. Right. You got a 40-year period there. So I am now looking, and that, that 40 years has been observed. Yeah, it's happened. You know, we've had Thatcher. We've had the fall of uh, communism. You know, we've had, um, you know, whatever happened in the second, the X-Files in the 90s. We've had the 9-11. All these, all these events have happened between the year I was born and now. They have they have, have, had happened, and they have always will have had happened, so on and so forth. Now, I can time travel back to 1985. Okay, I've been given this opportunity. I... As in this film, I will travel back to 1985. Now, you said I can change my future so I can do something which affects me in 2022. So I can go, oh, do you know what? I'm going to pick up this copy of whatever. Like If I really want to, I'll go back to 1938 or 1939 and pick up a, a first edition of uh, uh-huh. you know, Detective Comics 27, pop it in a box and keep it safe. Uh-huh. But I'll go back to 1985 and i am placed in front of um let's let's make this really simple i go back to 1985 and i appear in front of margaret thatcher and i have the opportunity to you know (laughs) let's just say this is going to be bizarre i commit i I assassinate in that instant I, i pounce on margaret thatcher and i assassinate margaret thatcher in 1985
2: if the British authorities have nothing better to do than to listen to stories out They're of time, This is hypothetical. This is all completely hypothetical. As right. and you stand out. So yeah, no crime. And also, in
1: 1985, they were too busy. They were too busy beating up beating up poor people in the uh, in the housing estates. But the point is, I have gone back and I have made an ultimate change because she was prime minister way up to, to up to 1990. So that's six years of history that she does no, no longer influences.
2: Yeah, but that's not, but in a deterministic universe, you cannot do that. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but so what was? But not, you're you're puzzled and you're angry that you can't do that. Yeah, yeah I'm, <laughs> I am
1: because i because I've watched Back to the Future.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's what this is a fantasy. Um, it's a different worldview, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, I think there's I think there's physical evidence for this. In the same way that you know light behaves as a as mm-hmm. a, a particle or a wave, and um, you know, and of course, time travel does happen all the time. We've observed it, you know, on the subatomic level. Yeah, um, it's not that time travel doesn't happen, but you know, no. So, so here's intellectually, if you believe that it's possible to change time, and and I, I've written a novel to this effect <laughs> that that takes this preposterous idea. But if you believe that it's possible to change time, every time that a quark is traveling back in time, it is resetting the entire universe. A new universe is being created, you know, billions of times every nanosecond uh, as subatomic particles materialize prior to their departure. So, yeah, but that doesn't mean that... So,
1: Because we obviously talk about... And this is where you get into this whole thing of like, you know, I know you hate the prospect of the multiverse, but like,
2: are you saying? Like, the, I mean, I believe in it. I just don't yeah, think it, it but, makes for good storytelling ninety percent of the time.
1: No, but if that's the thing, though, if that exists and we exist in one of those, every time that those quarks are going back and forth, like that, re, that re, sure, that resetting isn't resetting us. It's resetting and creating a brand new one. It's like, well, in this one, you know, it's resetting every, the
2: whole universe. It's creating a new timeline. It's yeah. just a timeline in which a quark is there in a different place or something. But you know. Hasn't
1: that quark gone? But don't these things, and I don't, I don't know enough about this. But aren't these quarks going forwards and backwards? Yes. So although it's going backwards, it still travelled. So it's, if this is, it has. So you're saying that that quark, quark, whether like, has also experienced the entirety of,
2: um, well, human existence. What I'm saying is that when when a particle appear, we can observe a particle appearing prior to its departure. Mm-hmm. It will then disappear very quickly. It does not stick around because it went back in time, and then now there are two of them, and it doesn't have to—no, rec- it's a deterministic universe in which it must go back in time to have reappeared in a non-deterministic universe, that need not be the case. In fact, that shouldn't be the case. You should mm. just have, you have know, quarks and particles just multiplying ad infinitum. But the other thing is, if it's not a deterministic universe, what I'm saying is every single time a particle goes back in time, it is creating a branch, a new branch. It's just not a branch that's based on, we think of those based on human decisions, mm. right? Like, oh, I decided to do X or Y. Well, that's a very human-centric way of looking at it. <laughs> if, in fact, a new branch is created, you know, at every single divergence, certainly by somebody arriving through time, that's, in fact, happening, you know, more often than we can possibly imagine. And, you know, you could square that. I mean, you could imagine that that is creating multiple universes at, at a at. You know, uh, you know, not just at a geometric rate, but every fraction of a second, there are times a billion, times a billion billion, multiple universes being created. You would have to believe that if you believe that time could be altered. I'm alright with that. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I, am, I want a guilt <laughs> Um
1: No, I know what you're saying. Um... <laughs> weirdly it's that thing isn't it of the complexities of this and in everything we've exp- you, you know you've just explained them we, you get into physics and astro you know sort of like particle physics and so on and so forth and just maybe it might be worth at one point just to sort of really iron this out we will get a particle physicist on to talk about this <laughs> um but it is interesting to me like you say it's a narrative step that, that dude, there are there is a narrative um choice that has chosen deterministic futures that like we've there are time travel films that have this deterministic outlook and then there are films that have a more non-deterministic future where we can change the future you know and each one of those is usually sort of like a heroic um outcome the ability to change the future is the heroic outcome back to the future uh avengers uh end game um you know all those level, but yeah yeah but, but it is is, isn't it? it's the hero changing the future like, that's the thing
2: isn't it it's sort of like some sort of sacrifice star trek right it's we're going exactly. to change the future for the better And and it, the future can be changed for the worst but yeah. you're following the protagonist who wants to change it for the better
1: exactly that's the yeah, that's the sort of like the hero narrative journey um However, really, whenever we see a deterministic future, it's a pessimistic ending. Like why? Um, well, at least in at least in film, is how I sort of see it. So, you know, um, in Twelve Monkeys, for example, like he is he, he is unable to prevent the spread of the virus and the killing of five billion people. Terminator, as we've said, it's sort of like you know the the going back of the Terminator is what instigates the research into skynet which eventually took creates the terminator which kills human race and so on and so forth um i am sure there's many more and people could probably point them out but it feels to me like say whenever you introduce that deterministic thing it's more it's introducing a more it's always going to result in a, in a in a or the the, the narrative of the, this suggests it's a negative outcome because we, we we've gone back in time to All prevent right. something
2: but and both of these are, are sort of narrative bullshit, right? Because in the, in the non-deterministic universe, oftentimes we've seen the universe be, you know, the time stream, quote unquote, be, you know, changed by a villain or an error. And then, you know, but you're following the hero who's going to do it for the better. You know, why not follow the other way? Um, so that's based on our our bullshit, you know, false narrative stuff. In a deterministic universe, th- what you're saying is true, but but it's a product of needing to have conflict in these films. So if you want a killer robot from the future in a deterministic universe, there's always going to be a killer robot hmm. from the future. So you can get past that and create some federation of planets if you want, but you still you can't undo. You can defeat that, you know, there's no problem with that if you if you want to go that way, but you can't undo that threat. So it's easy to create like some some messed up apocalyptic future and have that threat to the past. You can't then undo that. So I think that's just a product of needing conflict in these films. But I would also say that like, you know dark is an example of this until the terrible, you know problematic, let's say, third season. But, you know, that gives an example and of um, how you can use determinism that isn't pessimistic um, without I mean, without spoiling the plot too much. Somebody, you know, like if you go back in time and you become your own father, you know, figure right Not Mm. biological father, because you couldn't do that, but you become you adopt this kid who's who's struggling. You always did that. Mm. If you then if the kid, you know, you become your own father figure. If that kid then realizes who you are. He decides to sacrifice and knows how his father died. He decides to sacrifice himself by going back in time to be there for himself. That's a sacrifice. Mm. That's a noble thing. And I think that's every bit as noble I mean, a, a, probably a more realistic version of nobility than I'm the rampaging hero who's going to set things right, you know?
1: It's, I agree with what you're saying, but it, it, it gets to this... Um, I mean, it, the bootstrap paradox. And granted, this is an idea. Now, this is based on an idea. You know, I've thought of another one, which is less pessimistic, actually, but it creates more of a paradox. Um but in this one, the idea—let's say, let's use that. I haven't seen it yet, and uh, you know, you haven't bought it, enough, so Don't worry. But let's 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 use that as a concept. This idea of going back in time to support yourself. Okay. Well, when did you have that idea? It ne- you you were never given that idea. Was, you just figured out. Oh, okay. Well, this this person who was my mentor is me from the future. So therefore, I have to go. Back. So therefore, I, and it worked out. I'm great. So therefore, I have to go back in time to become my own mentor. You never, you never organically had that idea. You only had that idea because you'd already made that decision to go back in time, to be your mentor. So you get that paradox again. Insert that circular paradox. Now, a good example of this is a film called uh, Christ. It's Christopher Reeve, and I'm going to, have to find it. But basically, he is able to travel in time. It's all about love. It's you know, it's soppy bollocks, but um, it's actually not. It's not actually a bad film, um, but basically at one point his, the lover gives him a um a, a pocket watch, mm-hmm. but she only has that pocket watch because she was given it by him in the past.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that pocket watch then he travels with her again for her to give it to him to bring it back to the past to be given to her. So you then get this loop of this physical item
2: mm-hmm.
1: but when was it built? What
2: does it age? Well, see, that's a separate issue, right? so so that is that is an objection that I often have to deterministic loops, usually yeah. as you see in sort of you know Star Trek Doctor Who kind of stuff, uh, but sometimes in in film too, where you have the problem. You know, it's not that that watch couldn't have been built, but you have the problem of aging, right? Exactly. Um, and that's often true where somebody goes back in time and, like, you know, actually was that person, you know, whereas, where then you they went back in time to become that person again. And, you know, that watch should be ancient. And, in fact, you know, that I mean, that watch is a different watch when it's an older watch. You can't do that and think that you've really set up a deterministic loop. That's not actually deterministic. No. That's that's an abusive, the idea.
1: Yeah, exactly. But it's the point, is it? So it's actually, the film's called uh, Somewhere in Time uh, from 1980.
2: Um, We'll uh, we'll cover that on season 14 of Stories of
1: Time. (laughs) When we're really sort of struggling... Um, funnily enough, Christopher Plummer's in that one as well, so he obviously likes time travel films. Um, but yeah, but that but that's the sort of that's what I've seen thrown in there is you know you but that's a physical item to give it a physicality. Right. But you still get this idea of uh, in this film as well, the idea of the Twelve Monkeys. You know, you can take that as well. Is this idea of like even even the date the, this idea of the virus or whatever, but this date or but let's use the Twelve Monkeys. Jeffrey Goines doesn't doesn't come up with the idea of twelve monkeys. He does. He, he gives. He says to. He says to, uh, yeah. Cole. He says, "Well, you you mentioned it. You gave me the name. It's great. Like, you you gave me that germ of an idea. So that's where the twelve monkeys came from. We but then obviously, you know, go, uh, Cole's come back looking for the twelve monkeys because that's who he believes created, the, virus. And so that's what instigates the conversation with Goines, for him to have the germ of an idea to Then become the army of the 12 monkeys, which sets everything in motion. So this intellectual idea of the 12 monkeys, you know, the army of the 12
2: monkeys, no one ever, come from yeah, no, no one,
1: no one ever came up with it. It just exists.
2: Mm, well, but where do I mean so so I'll tell you what I believe, and I'll tell you, you know, I mean the question is: every time we come up with ideas, where did they come from? Right? I mean, it's not like you're looking it's different than the watch right because the watch mm-hmm. is aging, it's a physical object yeah an idea where did an idea originate is a much more amorphous kind of thing mm. um i mean i'll tell you you know i will defend to your point i will defend this having a problem with the bootstrap paradox um i don't have a problem with it intellectually uh with deterministic universes my problem is that the more intricate they become, the more you you they become problematic. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, so and it is exactly what you're saying. So I mean I would say that the it seems to me that the universe is a consistency producing machine. We see that in light being a particle or a wave. The universe, whether you believe it's a simulation or not, (laughs) seems to be generating consistency and forcing things to be consistent, right? In this way, you know, if you observe yourself dead coming through a portal, you know, you will at some point go through that portal. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be like, I don't want this to happen. I'm going to get as far away from the portal as I can. You may try to do that suddenly your ship fails or whatever, or that action winds up producing the effect that you're trying to avoid. That will always happen. Yeah. The universe must make that happen or the or it unravels. I mean, the, and the universe will elegantly allow this to happen somehow. Um, but you do get into this problem of like, well, how do we get to this as the simplest construct? What I'm saying is, I, I I don't have a problem with determinism and with the universe producing consistency. I do I do think as plots get more involved, how this would possibly be the Occam's razor universe simplest solution. <laughs> in other words, if somebody creates a time machine and they were go- and, and it works and the physics works and they're going to go back in time and potentially alter something. Yes, they go back in time they were always going to be there. Um, They they discover that they're not changing any time. Okay, I'm fine with that. But why would that universe be A-12 Monkey's post-apocalyptic universe if they hadn't already? I mean, it's conceivable, but it would seem that it would be simpler to just have that person die or not say those words— to cause the 12 monkeys thing.
0: Mm. And that
2: would be if the universe, I mean, you know, we talk about evolution as if it has will, if the universe has will and is producing um, consistency, it could find a simpler way to do this. Yes. That's all. That's where I would agree with you about problems with the bootstrap thing.
1: Yeah. But again, in the film, it's it, it's almost like you know to go back to the sort of Gilliam esque idea. It's it's quite clear that like he introduces some of these ideas just to be a pain in the ass.
2: Give me an like, example.
1: Well, that that exact that exact example, like you say, like this, because even Bruce Willis at some point is like, "Did did I tell you about the Twelve Monkeys?" Like I don't remember it. And if you go back and watch it, like it's mentioned very briefly in passing between their conversation, like, it's not a point between them. Mm-hmm um and so you know you you so going saying all this like even bruce willis is like uh i i don't think i said anything about the 12 monkeys to you you were too busy being crazy um (laughs) but it's there like you are then presented with this with this problem because that that's what sort of drives part of the you know the arc for bruce willis's character when he sort of feels that he could be the one that's guilty of the killing of the five million people five billion people like he, that's when he's like, no, it can't be true. Like this has got to be a delusion. That sort of drives part of his arc. But like, like you say, it's it's Gilliam esque, and like he's introducing this problem for for several reasons. Like he's introducing it because it's a character uh, hurdle for James Cole, the the Bruce Willis character. But also as an audience member, like you know, it's another thing where you're like, oh yeah, no, that's good enough. Christ, now I've got to go back and check that. Like, I can imagine watching this in the cinema. <laughs> as things unfurl and you're like damn it i want to see i've got to see the start of this again to go and see if that happened and that seems very gilliam-esque because like you've you know you're never like you said it's there to disorientate because you're never entirely sure if certain conversations actually happen like they're referenced later in the film and you're like hey but they did talk but did it happen like, you know so it's 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 there for several purposes and I i kind of like that because it does keep you on your toes where you're sort of like skimming back to previous scenes to find things out
2: but also Um, i mean bruce willis is doped up and it could have happened off screen like we don't know what it you know you could imagine it from his point of view like what the hell did i i said some of that but like did i mutter i thought this guy was crazy why did he fixate on that
1: yeah yeah and that's the thing that we said you know that thing about being crazy as well like one of the things uh, towards the end of the film, or as it gets into that sort of third act, where uh, Rayleigh is starting to believe it, but but Cole is, is starting to sort of like, you know, consider it could be a delusion. There's a scene um, where he starts to believe, they get confronted or accosted by a homeless person. And the homeless person is the one who says about removing his teeth. And he says, like you know, oh yeah, because it's, it's that voice. He's the one that's, that because you've heard the voice and they've seen it, you know, a few times. And he says about removing his teeth because he's come from the same place. But again, he never says the future. He just says, "I've come from the same place." And then when they when they are attacked by the pimp, um, he removes his teeth. I don't even know if he kills the pimp. He just, I assume he does, but he takes out one of his teeth. And he says, "This is how they're tracking me." And even he has like, out like
2: three of his teeth with a yeah, knife.
1: Yeah, takes out, Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> but it's not the simplest way of doing that. No, I'm sure there are easy, easier ways, but he does it.
2: And I would even, use pliers, personally.
1: Yeah, it's this thing of like, this is how you track... You know, <laughs> this is how they track me. And that's like prime conspiracy mm. theory. That's top-level conspiracy. This is how they're tracking me. Okay, here's your tin foil. Wrap your
2: head in this. Yeah, it's paranoid schizophrenic one on one right it like is, stereotype
1: exactly however when he's confronted by and i forget the guy's name i have to check it but is it like um uh, mm. gosh, it's the guy that he saw in the trenches in world war 1 mm. who hands mm. in the gun and he says we couldn't we lost track of you because you took out your teeth mm-hmm. so he confirms it's true yeah so then, so then you're like hang on so this homeless guy that you've seen yeah uh, he's also a time traveler from the future that sort of made a bit a, a clearly botched job of this time traveling thing. He's a, another one of these volunteers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that's what I'm saying. Like this film keeps throwing things at you, and you're like, hang on, wait a minute. Like, so this is true, or is it still that I'm nuts? It's it's all true. No, yeah. it's all
2: true. I mean, I like that stuff. Oh, I do. Uh, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I I mean, I I will say, like, especially with the two other time travelers. It's not clear how many there are. No. And especially in a deterministic universe, when you start multiplying time travelers, you, you increasingly becomes kind of untenable, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, you've got 20 people wandering around, you know, like, why don't they send more? Are they going to send more people after this movie? If 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 they did, they would have already been here. Why would they shut down this? pro? I mean, I guess they shut down this program because. Well, monkeys wasn't responsible, but if they do know that this is the date, and that, why would they not send more people? If they did, they never round wound up meeting Bruce Willis and, and getting to that airport. Well, uh, Jose,
1: the, the, the character is Jose. Um, because the other thing that's interesting, you say about this thing about you know, um, sending more people back. One of the things that's quite clear though is t- tra- traveling through time affects your psychology. So it affects you mentally. Like, you know, it's there's a duality of experience whether like what's real, what's not real. How am I supposed to exist in both the past and the present? And there's sort of like your ability to um cope with that determines how well you survive, or how well you can sort of like, you know, process that information. And I almost think you get like two, you get like three cases. The homeless guy mm. they bump into clearly was not stable enough. So like you say about it being deterministic and you have more people, like if he goes back and his head, his brain becomes scrambled eggs, like you got no problems because he just sort of collapses in the street and sleeps there for six days and doesn't do anything until he's pulled back into the future. No impact. You think that Bruce Willis, who is sort of like tipping that balance of... You know, he's after that. You know, is it true? Is it not? I don't know. My brain isn't exactly scrambled eggs, but I'm really sure. Jose seems to be able to do it with complete clarity. Yeah, because he's sent back to twenty to 1914. He's telling, he's injured and still telling them. Like you know, he's mm-hmm. urgent, but he's still telling them. But then when he appears in 1996, like he's he's able to re- re- repeat information from the from the future. He's there, like, yeah, I've just been sent. You know, we 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 got the phone call. You've literally just made. I'm here to tell you, you've got to kill this guy. Here's a gun. You know, you've got to do it. That's your mission. That's what gets you your pardon. Um, he seems like a much more stable character. Yeah, I mean, he's
2: he's already got the pardon. Um, Yeah, but yeah. So so I you know, I I think that the the crazy guy with the teeth out.
0: Mm.
2: when you hear his voice in the future it's before he went back to the past um, yes and there is a line of dialogue that seems to confirm this the second time Bruce Willis is talking to him in the future or uh, he's like oh you saw me you know yeah. um and it seems to me that he that these represent the, you know possibly what you're saying you know but it's also true that that like that guy is somebody who has, Seen the opportunity to just, I don't give a shit about your mission that you drafted me into. (laughs) Like, no matter how horrible life is being homeless without teeth, it's still better than living underground uh, in this bizarre, you know, Gilliam-esque future world. Um, So, and that is consistent. You know, so he's, like, figured out how to beat the system, right? You convince him to send you back And then you pull out your teeth, you do whatever it takes to make sure they don't find you. Mm -hmm. And then you could just live out the rest of your life in the 90s, you know, um, at least until the pandemic hits. And then, you know, that other guy, I'm not sure of the sequencing there. Like, it must have been that he was also sent. You would assume he was also sent to World War One. And that was an earlier trip than him being at the airport.
0: Mm.
2: I mean, I, I, I like this stuff, but my problem is, okay, if they, he is sort of a deus ex machina to give, get the gun, right? Mm-hmm. And, and give him this mission. But if that's the case, they've clearly never sent anybody else. Like they know the date, that, uh, they know the guy. Yeah. Why have you not sent anyone else to, to finish the job that Bruce Willis clearly didn't finish and why are you trying to kill this guy now knowing that all along they've told him you can't alter the past the point is not to stop this the point is to get information uh, so we can get get information to deal with in the future yeah yeah so uh, you know it's almost as if they forget this is a deterministic universe in order to make that that cool beginning and ending you know work
1: well weirdly I don't think they do forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the beginning and ending proves it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think this is one where they sort of like you know, um, could they say we've just received your phone call? You know, we've yeah. we've we've just we've just deciphered your phone call, uh, and that's why I've come back to this point. So you don't know, and so you don't know when that was deciphered because Jose, when he comes back to 1996 with the gun, he is carrying the injuries he received in 1914. Like his face is scarred, he's got the cuts on his head that you see that he actually received in the trenches. So there is a period when they haven't been able to decipher that phone call because they say that it gets garbled.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. when you hear the one that it's her, so it's her fault, isn't it? Because when you hear the one that mm-hmm. Doctor Rayleigh left, it's all it's all crackling and it's garbled something's been lost in that time period so they've had to sort of like piece it back together so they've only just pieced back together this this, this follow-up phone call so they've never had that in the future at some point that like, they've never they haven't had that piece of information until this skipping back and forth has happened and you may think they may they may actually be like look fuck it we've got nothing else to lose <laughs> give him <laughs> g- give him a gun and see if we can change the past and all this proves is you can't. <laughs> yeah, because he has seen this person die. It, you know, it, it almost wants to give you. It's teasing, as we've said, <laughs> that Back to the Future or sort of you know that that sort of like heroic saving the future um, ending. You know, this is Bruce Willis. Don't forget, this is Die Hard sort of super you know star. They are teasing you that that ending, and then they again they're pulling the rug. Like the you kid, know, that's what they keep doing with this film. Like they're going to give him the gun. You know who you've got to go and stop. Go, here's the gun. Go stop him. Like, you know, it's no surprise. He gets given a 44 Magnum. Like, you know, this is the dirty Harry gun. Go save the day. And then the stupid pratt runs out under a, <laughs> an, an airport causeway and gets shot down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like
2: it, it was always going to happen this way. Um,
0: yeah.
2: I think you're, I th- think you're offering a good explanation. Hmm. I mean, I think that the film is so successful with her phone call, right? The fact Mm -hmm. that you've heard it earlier, and it's the same phone call, and he's able to quote it, further proving that, you know, he is, in fact, from the future. Um, I mean, and that sort of causality paradox is so satisfying, you know, uh, from a narrative standpoint, um, that having the second call, having a guy show up while we just heard it, I mean, it's nice, like... You know, and it's, I guess it's nice in like a back to the future sense. Like, you just heard it. I just made that call a minute ago, you know, but they should have heard it earlier. And they say, well, we just deciphered it. How, I mean, I like that they have taken this laundry services, you know, voicemail and it's like, well, we found that voicemail and we know what number it is. And they clearly weren't checking this for like 20 years. So, you know, well, not 20, I mean, like a year before, whatever. Mm. Um, They weren't erasing this daily. So, you know, we can use this as a kind of Dropbox. I think that's incredibly clever. But it's so convenient that they wouldn't have deciphered that earlier, and it's so successful from a narrative standpoint that you hear the earlier one. Why couldn't we have heard that second one? Why Why, you know, like... I think you're trying to make sense of this. And I think it works what you're saying Mm. totally. But I think it's, there is this way in which time travel movies and time travel stories oftentimes in the final act kind of don't have the courage of their convictions. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, watch the determinism give way to another thing or the, you know, or the time can change, give way to determinism. You know, here, you know, I mean, why did you not decipher this message earlier? Why send that guy to give him a gun, which only makes sense of Now, maybe they want him to die and they want him to fulfill the records mm. of him dying, but they don't seem to have those records. No. So, I mean, I, I would be cool to me if I could make sense of like they wanted him to die. They knew how he was going to die. And they also always had this voicemail that it wasn't actually the 12 Monkeys. Um, but that I can't make sense of, of that, and to me that's kind of like, yeah, you've made it work. You've offered mm. the most convincing explanation, Scott, but it's still. But yeah,
1: know. it's one of those. that like, I say again, and, and you know, I often lament that I do these but like the the, Ho- the Jose turning up doesn't need to happen. Yes, because it, it's not him that actually, it's not Cole that determines who it is that is the threat. It's. Uh, Rayleigh like She makes the connection She she bumps into him at the bar uh, In the airport And then she sees him on the uh, on the Front of the newspaper Next to the picture of Christopher Plummer Who's been kidnapped by Goins So it's all sort of connected But she sees him and she, she sees that he works At this virologist laboratory And so like, She's the one that makes the connection um, And so yeah, if you wanted to remove the time travel element of this, this, like, say, this, this, this sort of Deus Ex Machina sort of uh, gun and thingy, have it that like she convinces Bruce and he grabs a gun from a policeman, and runs to and that's when he gets gunned down. Hmm. Yeah, he you know. doesn't
2: even need to get uh, be holding a gun to get gunned down, as as we've no. all seen recently, time and time yeah. again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It would take probably it, it, he's white, so it would take a little bit longer, but still. But yeah, no, there could be. You you don't. You, he just needs to be convinced. He needs to stop that guy, and therefore do something to to in order to be gunned down. And I think that would then
2: that cleans that deterministic future. Yeah, you're completely correct. And it's cool seeing that guy again and mm. having him. You know, it's cool that final voicemail. You know, like, look, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. But it's not. Yeah. That. I mean, that stuff's cool, but. It doesn't really make sense, and you're you're quite right. You don't need it.
1: No, but it's a again, it's a minor quibble actually. Because by this point, I am I am you know, and I've quibbled about quite a few things in film, but I actually really enjoy you know, there's a lot in this film. Um, because one of the things I I I wanted to, and we are going to get to the fact that this film is about a pandemic. (laughs) Yes, yeah, we we will get to that in a second. One of the things I actually want to talk about actually is Jeffrey Goines, Brad Pitt, and Christopher Mm. Plummer. And that relationship um, and how interesting it is as a sort of like there are three chapters to that sort sort of to that relationship. That when you first meet Jeffrey is in this really sort of like ramshackle, disgusting sort of uh, institution. And he thoroughly believes that, like, well, you know, when they tell my father where I am, he's going to come get me out and get me to one of those run- really, you know, wonderful places where they give you drugs and this and that. And, it's, you know, and he goes on that little rant. And you're like, okay, I don't even believe if this is, true, you know, if this is one of his delusions or, you know, whatever. Like, you don't know. It's just um, he keeps mentioning these things, but it could completely be in his head. And then the next time you meet him in 96, like, he's in this massive house. um, He's at a banquet. (laughs) You know, he's wearing a a tuxedo. He's still doing that, the crazy act. And I kind of like... And one of the things I like about Brad Pitt, especially early Brad Pitt, is like the little touches. Um, I recently watched uh, Interview with a Vampire mm. and I was thoroughly impressed with both Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and that sort of and how good they were. But in this film, like Brad Pitt, sort of like, not just it's not just his eye movements, like he's wearing contact lenses to make his eyes look like squiff and stuff and his, his hand movements. But it's the fact that like he's asleep at the table and when he gets up, like he's taking his shoes off, but he's taking them with him and um, all these little things that add up to just being a really fascinating character but then that whole scene again is like you know when there's like Bruce Willis is in like a, a boiler suit or whatever and then when he escapes and again you said about the comedy like there's some great comedy in this because that's one of the times that sort of like, you know he manages to escape and there's people in there um, I forget, well, there's, there's two guys watching something on television and they're commenting on that just as they, mm. then the gunman burst in looking for him but you get that chapter where he's obviously been, re, you know, re, um, reunited with his father and that sort of thing, and then the final one is at the end when it's sort of like you know the final act of the sort of the Twelve Monkeys, and now he's leading the army of the Twelve Monkeys, which is this eco group, and they're going to kidnap. He's going to kidnap his father, and make all this big point, and I'm sort of like, there's a whole other film going on, <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. like the Goines saga. <laughs> Is going on in the background. And it's really interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah I mean. And I and I guess we have to think. That the whole reunited with his dad. That you know. His dad is. Tolerant of his eccentricities. Shall mm. we say. Because he wants to. Involve his son in the family business. And be you know reunited with him. And on good terms. But that secretly all along. Uh, you know the son is still plotting uh mm. you know hasn't really changed it's just playing enough to placate his father yeah i mean to to me you know that's good stuff it's just not as it's maybe not as involving as it is to you
1: yeah i, I just find it fun i just think it's yeah. nice it's like you said, about the narrative consistency um but again it comes up of like details like they've clearly thought this out like it, you know Goins, Jeffrey Goins in the first part could have just been a throwaway character and sort of like, but the fact that like I say it's all connected, um, works so well. Um,
2: yeah, fun is the term that kind of defines the, the Brad Pitt performance for me. Mm. And, and I think that does add a lot of comedy and a lot of levity, uh, to this. Um, but I also think that, you know, all my usual objections about like, oh, great, there's like three important characters in this universe and they all knew each other. And like, well, the causality paradox explains that. You know, mm. that's why, you know, like what? You got institutionalized. You happened to be institutionalized next to this guy who led the army of the 12 monkeys. Yeah, well, you kind of gave him the idea. Oh, well, that takes away the problem, the thing that mm. I usually am irritated by and turns it into something fascinating.
1: Yeah, and that's what I mean. The fact that it keeps into over. I mean, the thing is when you returns... Uh, that second time, when he goes to the mansion, like the whole point is to go and find, um Goyne anyway, because he's linked in with the virologist who was his dad. So it's the fact that, like, and it's also like the fact that, you know, it's 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 one of those things we've sort of like everything's so close to the answer in this. Mm. Yeah, they don't find the real answer till the end, but like, you know, yes, he thinks it's Jeffrey, but actually the father is the key. It's just a different employee that. Um, and do do we find a motivation for why he does it? Other no. than yeah,
2: no, he he just uh, he's just an evil son of a bitch. He's just yeah. you know he wants to see the world burn. Um, and he does seem like kind of I won't say like sexually excited, but he does seem kind of like he likes the sort of apocalyptic imagery in mm. that sort of presentation. And I and I sort of am left to ponder like how much was he influenced by this he says that he has done similar work uh to the psychiatrist and yet his work is in virology it's not you know so like is he researching you know uh uh visions of an apocalypse or you know the cassandra complex or yeah
1: it's it's almost like um it made me yeah it's more it's almost like a sort of like saying like a, a a not a snide comment, but almost like a flirtatious flirtation,
2: isn't it? Like, I'm working in a similar field. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, it's also really cool, just as a, as a as a directing touch, that, like, it comes at the very... It's very memorable, and you remember when you see him later. And I have face blindness, I still remember him. He's positioned well, the audio's clear, so you do remember it. But it's kind of position in that initial scene as um just as sort of like another ivory tower intellectual who's gonna come up to the table and say like well you know i I, i'd like to talk about my research yes it comes off as you know uh egotistical
1: yeah, it's because he's followed up by yes. He says it, doesn't he? And then straight after, another person says, "Well, you might be, you might be familiar with my research." <laughs> yeah. so he is. He's just sort of like you can tell from her point of view. He's just one of many that's done the same thing. Yes, no, that is a very good point. Um, and I, I like I at the ending, like you say about taking sort of like a pleasure in it when he has to go through the the sort of like security check and he gets it out and there's like, guys, like, oh, it's transparent. It's like yes, but there is something in there. He's opening it up and. Mm-hmm. He even waves it into that guy's face, and he's like you can see, this what, it's even odorless. It's like all that kind of stuff is. Um, he's just taking a pleasure in knowing that he's about to like release something um, at these different locations. Like again, because he's having a he calls it business, but he's got the the locations mapped out that we've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Willis has, has re- re- uh, recited in the future that they know the the tracking of the where the virus broke out.
2: That's really an effective scene, you know. Yeah. I mean that you know, where, where the audience is able to kind of realize it go, oh <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. without any character realizing it. I mean that's quite great. Yeah.
1: And that there's am some of this film, there's loads of little moments. Again, there's some saying like it throws it out there and all of a sudden you want to go back and go, hang on, Bruce recited some cities before. <laughs> I've got I've got to go back and check. And it is obviously the same, uh the same cities in the same order because it's a sequential uh, that's the, the, the locations of the virus outbreaks.
2: Well what about that? because yeah, we, we were talking about the sort of problems with the with the ending that it sort of wanting to change the future anyway and, and, and whatnot. Um, the woman who you've seen in the future being on the plane and being in insurance, I've always taken that as a sort of, you know wink, wink. like um, okay, first of all, You know, it's just it's just a coincidence. Right. That's like uh, one of these happy coincidences or not so happy in this case. That's kind of pleasing. Um, And I think it's also interesting that she's in insurance. So that kind of tells you they don't really know what they're doing uh, or suggests it's even more farcical in the Mm -hmm. future. Um, And it's cool to see her outside of this dystopian context um, and imagine yourself quite unaware of what's going to happen. But is in a movie in which nothing is a coincidence, is that a coincidence or does she She, actually have, they in fact deciphered that? I mean, I'm doing the thing we always do of overanalyzing, but has she actually deciphered that second phone call and she had, does she know that she she was on the plane with that dude? The one thing I'm curious about is when you see her, because there's a
1: 40 year difference Hmm. between the release of the virus and the future does she look 40 years older in the future
2: no but it, you or, but you see scott they eat insects and that's really good for preserving <laughs> your legs yeah uh, the, bit when he eats the, uh, uh, the bit when he eats the spider that like, proper
1: makes me <laughs> quiver but anyway so my i even was looking at it from the other way around and I want to say, well, is that is is that the Is that nineteen ninety six her, mm. or is it is it some sort of mm. as you said, sort of idiot, you know, pun? I'm an in insurance, as in like, you know, I've been sent back to complete to to make sure that either to make sure this happens or to try and prevent you, you know, that sort of thing. Mm.
2: Um, That'd be very interesting. You I know, should uh, have thought of that. That's quite smart.
1: It's when she says I'm in insurance that I'm thinking, especially for, like, you know, when you've got, like, an action star in the film, like you get those puns, don't you? Sort of, like, you know... Do you know what I mean?
2: You've that, seen too many action
1: movies. <laughs> I, I really have. But do, do you know what I mean? That you get those yeah. sorts of puns where sort of, you know... um, you know what what job do you do oh i mean i'm in insurance i mean you know risk management or something like that when you sort of then it'll pan to a montage of them killing different people um it just felt to me i was like okay is she there for a reason or is it that you know because what you know because it made me it made me question like well why wasn't she killed by the virus Mm -hmm. um but that gets into a different point. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's quite open to interpretation. That ending,
2: like which version of her is it? That's really interesting because I, I mean, I found myself sort of having, you know, the same question about the virus, and, and also thinking like, shouldn't everybody have been killed in this airport? You know, mm. like, um, and and one assumes he doesn't care if he dies, uh, spreading the virus. But, um, now, I mean, I was thinking maybe. It changed her to have been at the site where the second site, right? At least mm. after Philadelphia, where the virus started. Um, but I really like this this idea that you're pushing that you know insurance is ensuring that this happens, right? Yeah. In which case, did they could have had that second message all along, and they sent the gun to Bruce Willis because. Maybe that that guy they sent with a gun had already, you know, maybe on another trip or whatever. They they know what's happening here. Mm. Um, we've got to make sure that this happens now. Um, I don't know. I quite I quite do like this idea. Yeah. And so that's what I mean. But the, the, the ending of this film sort of like, you know, it sort of
1: has that opening thing again of like. It's deterministic, but they want to like. Yeah. Is there something more going on? Oh, oh, I know, like the,
2: you've seen too many action movies. Yeah. I've seen too many, uh, like Hollywood casting decisions, yeah. and so I'm like, I don't even notice. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's not 40 years younger. It's like, yeah, you just don't bother de aging, her. that's <laughs> fine. I, I don't care. Um,
1: because yeah, even if she's in her 30s, she has to look, at least look in her 70s in the future and stuff. So it, it cr- crosses my mind, but I mean, one of the things I'm more interested about actually is, um. This takes place in Philadelphia. the the, the hospital, the, sorry, the 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 airport that it happens at. The first release is, is Philadelphia. When Bruce Willis, early in the film, is released to the surface to do an explanation, like he he is stationed under Philadelphia, and so you know. Um, you never really get an explanation of how time travel works. Cause obviously there's the space time as well. Like it's got to be, you know, I don't know, but, um, I don't know the fact that he goes and walks the streets of Philadelphia, sort of, you know, he sees the bear, which is then mirrored in the, um, in the shop window and the, and the lion and so forth. When you see all that, like, yeah, all, all right, his prison who he's volunteered from is under Philadelphia. So that again had me thinking, like, okay, so is that important? It adds into this point where later on is like, is it a delusion, yes or no? Because he's obviously thinking about Philadelphia. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: we know now that isn't it, we now know that isn't um, um, a delusion. So is it, you know, so you get like, this is that over analysis, okay. So is it, is it him being in Philadelphia important? I don't think it is, but I, I just, I, I like the fact that it's all in one, you know, that place.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I do, I do love the bear thing. I love, um, you know, it, it kind of irritates me that like everything that's ever on TV is important to the plot. <laughs> like
0: yeah.
2: I, I think the thing that irritates me the most is the amount of press coverage for a kidnapped, you know uh, uh kidnapped psychiatrist it's like mm-hmm. you know with that even you know that's like every update every, you know, it's like, <laughs> top story tonight you know um you know boy falls down a well and a psychiatrist has been kidnapped <laughs> yeah. like, how I how didn't... about
1: those those heady days when the two biggest stories in one of the nation's <laughs> <laughs> news was a boy trapped down a well and a psychiatrist being kidnapped by one of their patients
2: yeah, well, you know, I mean, this was a period in which the the biggest uh, press story was the president got a blowjob. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we had to worry about over here. Um, yeah, I mean, but that does kind of irritate me, uh, especially about the the kidnapping. Um, but um, but I do rather like in the sort of like motif sense, the bear and at one point you have the the growl of the lion as he looks mm-hmm. up and sees the same building that both reminds the audience that oh yeah that's the same building and also um you know indicates some kind of trauma on his part i mean the florida keys advertisement and they they go away and you know the the hitchcock vertigo thing you mm-hmm. know uh i mean all of this is is done and very well i, I that kind of stuff i like the interweaving um You know, and and that sort of makes me it seems to work with that deterministic universe that it's like, no, it's all of a piece. It's all going to be creepy, creepy, like echoes of of itself. So maybe Philadelphia is just another one of those. Or maybe if we want to get into the weeds, as we were, (laughs) like the fact that she is leaving uh, the airport in Philadelphia suggests that's where she lives or has some sort of, you know, base camp. Um, and so somehow, you know, she she really founded all of this, and she's much more instrumental to the plot than <laughs> we, we realize behind the scenes. Stay tuned for *Monkeys too.
1: Yeah, or well, there was a TV series which I've never watched, and and. Neither, I don't know, but it's the fact that you can watch this film and you can have these debates about sort of like you know how much of this is important or is not important. Yet, if you want to just sit back and watch it, you can just enjoy this. And for a you know like a mind bending sort of time travel thriller, like it still works on that on that level. Um, And I think that's why this is such a good film because it does it where you can dig into it and make all those sort of conspiratorial sort of connections, or you can just go to go film this i'm gonna watch this and enjoy it
2: um i think that's very true i mean and i think it it feels like especially with that 12 monkeys music and the end credits yeah. the logo like i think at the time like it felt like a really innovative out of control movie and you know and now it feels like it's a very controlled careful exercise that yeah. is careful in the ways that it's out of control and i think that's really thrilling um we should say, you know, we're not at five billion people yet, but we are over five million mm. uh, worldwide. I mean, that's you know, four orders of magnitude, uh, three orders of magnitude, but um, still, it it is it strikes me as oddly utopian in a way. This <laughs> terrible future, like,
1: yeah. yeah yeah oh we found that you it's it's funny because again like i've seen recently like this watching this film now when they were like firstly it's sort of this idea of like going underground manage to control a virus when we're like oh no no no, no, open air is what you need and you know um is it it
2: clear that they're underground because the virus is in the the, in the air i mean there's no i mean is there no radiation it's it's just i know that like they say the suits can't be scratched is it clear that the reason they're not above ground is just the virus it's it's sort of it's it's heavily indicated because he's
1: looking for he's looking for traces of viruses in things he takes his Mm. uh, water sample then he's looking for insects and stuff to see if they're sort of um suffering from it um but yeah, you you have this notion of like you, you know humanity united together and sort of like built these underground sort of things. Um, and <laughs> I, I, a similar thing I recently saw sort of like a comparison to like to Watchmen. You know, Azimandius like is like, mm. we will introduce something that could damage the whole of society. The whole of humanity could be destroyed by this thing, and everyone will come together. Uh, and now you sort of you read Watchmen, and you go, oh, poor Alan Moore, you were so quaint in the, in the 80s. And this film feels the same. You watch it and you go, "All right, well, it, c- it took five billion people. I don't even think that would be enough anymore."
2: <laughs> no, I don't. I don't either. I mean, and I think we knew that was quaint in the '80s. I mean, it's because mm. it's based on an Outer Limits episode, but um, but we never imagined like the first thing that would happen after the squid attack in New York was a counter movement about how the squid wasn't real and it (laughs) was staged by the government. And, you know, uh, don't believe the squid became a movement that took over half our politics or something. Now it's like, you know, now I feel that way about, you know, that there isn't about this 12 monkeys, that there isn't a lot of like, raw you you don't see a humanity united you don't really see a lot of that it's not really mm. clear if this is all of humanity or just one her installation other kind of grounded Philly we don't we don't know but I do find myself thinking like right and where are the people saying this is all a myth for the government to control us yeah um, yeah yeah it's a hoax we you know
1: yeah
2: um, we can not live, obs- live on the surface um, People dying in the hospitals As 5 billion people die The main concern is Our individual freedoms And storming hospitals with guns Claiming yeah. that there aren't people dying there
0: <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: we, to be fair We don't see the history that led us to the 2035 That may have happened I'd be interested yeah. to see An expansion <laughs> upon it um, Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting to watch this this idea uh, of a virus being released—it um, it w- again, I'm going to go to action film as well, but like this was clearly in the zeitgeist a little bit because you get other films like uh, The Rock, which is you know, the Nicolas Cage film, which again is like we've got chemical uh, viral weapons that we're going to release over a city and. Uh, it, it, <laughs> is this coming out of like is this coming out of like the gulf war this idea of chemical and biological weapons in the 90s is this sort of like was this like a growing fear at this period like you know the mid 90s
2: uh, i don't know i mean maybe um that's good that's a good point about the the gulf war i mean certainly uh the first gulf war uh, americans expected chemical weapons to be used on our mm-hmm.
0: troops
2: uh and they really weren't but um you know, that was anticipated. And, you know, uh, our government threatened Saddam Hussein not to do it. Um, but we, we all thought it was going to happen and were nervous about it. And then it, we did it. But I would also say, like, to me, I'm struck by, I mean, there have been movies since the 90s. Uh, you know, the pandemic and outbreak and, and mm. stuff like that. I mean, mm. there well, might have been. Outbreak's 90s. Is that? hmm yeah, I don't know. Maybe there was something going on. But I I, I mean, I would just say we all knew this was coming. <laughs> I've known my entire life we were overdue <laughs> for the Spanish flu or something like it. And heard lectures about how prepared we were and, you know, what the protocols were. Our whole lives, we've known this was going to happen. And then people are act surprised. As to whether there's something in the 90s, I don't know yeah
1: I, I, it just wouldn't because this film has both like an you know like an ecological message or at least an ecological element which i definitely remember from the 90s um and this sort of viral component of of yeah no this thing could think be released from a lab and you know um the you know the funny thing is i'm watching this film now and when they, they refer to Christopher Plummer as a virologist and they have to provide a little explanation I'm like no, that's right I, I know what one of those is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite versed in virology in this uh, in this day and age um it, it is it is interesting but like you know it, it just felt like pressing for, for now but also like both the ecological message and the the virus message but also like I was just thinking like you say this is 20 years ago uh, more 25 years ago and I'm like yeah people were clearly worried about it then.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, all you have to do is look at the history of, of outbreaks, mm. and, you know, you know we're overdue. I mean, we're overdue for a lot. We're overdue for, you know, a, a polar shift. Um, you know, we've had... We're overdue for a significant meteor strike. Um, <laughs> you know, we've had a very lucky window in Both. both... Yeah in the last uh, 30,000 years or so to evolve writing and get to space travel and all this stuff. But we've also had a lucky window in the 20th century. Um, But we don't think like that as a species. Is it, is it a bad thing that I watch this movie and kind of think like 5 billion people dying? That's terrible. (laughs) Eh, That might also be the best thing for the planet. And as long as we don't really have to stay underground, like in this movie, you know, <laughs> uh, it might not be the worst thing. Yeah, there, there is a
1: moment you go, hmm, yeah, when when you're sort of with the villain and go, hmm, does he have a point? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I know, it's 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 another one. I like, say, sort of like you know, maybe you know, I don't want a virus release and wipe out five billion people, you know, but population growth. You know, resource consumption um, is clearly the biggest one. You know, the biggest problem we have. uh, The the damage we're doing. I recently saw an interview uh, from Australian News with Elon Musk, where the interviewer was telling him about um, there are families that are making decisions between eating and eating, and he was like baffled. He's like, "Why we have enough resources to make everybody?" like warm well, what what eh like he's so detached from the reality of of you know the everyday people it makes you even more concerned um that you're like yeah no these geniuses are going off and traveling in space and everyone moans about it but like yeah yeah cuz they clearly don't understand they're so detached from the reality of the of the, the everyday that they just don't they don't know to put money into that like you know cuz no one's selling them <laughs> But
2: yeah, and and you see that when, um, you know, I always remember, uh, I think it was a study of uh, bellhops and people who worked in in hotels where they said that, you know, if you work in a really ritzy hotel, rich people tip based on the number of bills. They don't know what those bills are worth, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's like, should I be tipping you five hundred dollars or five? I don't know. I'll give you five bills, and if those happen to be hundreds, great. If those (laughs) are ones, you think, I got ripped off. Um, And you see these interviews where people are asked, you know, what is the price of bread? What is the Mm -hmm. price of milk? Which I don't drink, don't think we need to drink, but it's a staple, and uh, people, you know, will be wildly inaccurate. And the more rich they are, the more it's like, yeah, I mean, the difference between $1 and 10 is relevant to me, but not a crisis if I have to pay $10. Uh, but to them, the difference between $1 and 10 is the same as the difference between $1 and $10,000. And the, the greater that threshold, the more you become completely yeah. out of touch. Uh, you say that I, I did a sort of video recently of
1: Boris Johnson being asked ex- that exact question. They refer to it as a shopping basket question. You know, what is their everyday price of bread? What is their price of milk? He didn't even answer. He just, just distracted and ends up talking about how, well, it doesn't matter what their price now, because, you know, once Brexit takes hold, they'll go down. And it's like, clearly that's not how it works.
2: <laughs> I don't <laughs> you know the answer. Moron. All I know is my government will make it decline. That was pretty much the answer. Yeah. Because yeah, he's um, an asshole and an idiot. Yeah.
1: Um it but anyway, like a Trump answer. Mm, I mean, it is totally, totally that sort of detached and uncaring answer.
2: On this point, um, to the the whole like pandemic thing, I do think that it is interesting that the virus is manufactured here. Mm. Um, and I think that there's also there's a certain, I don't know, a certain um hubris in that in thinking like. Yes, it's the Frankenstein thing. It's the nuclear war thing. Humanity will be destroyed by its own means. But in a movie that is concerned for ecology and animal rights, or at least superficially has those those themes. um, You know, the fact that, you know, it it talks about past pandemics and whatnot. The fact that. It's an engineered pandemic Mm -hmm. rather than just something we're overdue for that nature. Is stronger than we are. You know, we think we're the masters of this planet, no. And I think this plays into people who think, well, this must have been manufactured. I think. Well, I, I think you're totally right. I think everything.
1: I think pre-pandemic, I think the vast majority of any world-ending, um, you know, m- movie or even like a dystopian piece, like it's always caused by human action. Like, is it everything from Skynet, uh, the petrol wars of Mad Max, you know, all this stuff is always tracked back to even like the most recent uh Planet of the Apes, the one with Andy Serkis as Caesar in, like, you know, the end of the first film shows you the spread of the virus which starts to kill off the human population. Man-made virus. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we constantly have this idea that we are going to be the sort of the architects of our own destruction. And then you get something like. The COVID pandemic, and it's almost like the world going, oh no no no, <laughs> that's that's my job, um, and when I'm ready, I'll wipe you, I'll wipe you out in a heartbeat. Um, and we are, we, you know, we still are. We, you know, you still have these ideas. I re- I recently read a, sh- a short story, which was written in 1909, which I do need to send you actually, called "The Machine Stops," and that actually has about people living in a honeycomb structure under the earth. Because they've wiped out all the resources and made Earth uninhabitable an, an um, right. and are reliant on these machines for it to. It's, it's incredible. You know, 1909, this story was written. <laughs> uh, and it has these ecological messages of saying, like, yeah, we've, we been—we are going to completely plow through these ro- resources and have to find another way to
2: live. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I love what you're saying. I mean, this is some deep stuff. And it gets me to one of my final observations, which is that this movie came out shortly before 9-11. And I think after 9-11, there was this period in which it was like, how quaint that you're worried about a virus. (laughs) You know, we just lost two zip codes in New York, you know, and we were busy overturning our entire, you know, uh, budgets uh, to, you know start going crazy. Yeah. Uh and we really went crazy for a while. And and I think that in a way post 9/11 this seemed uh, sort of a naive and quaint film. And I think today it seems much more prescient. Yeah. Today we look back and think, no, you know, the idea that um terrorists are going to s- destroy America or any, you know, major country is utterly absurd. You know, Mm. they might inflict terrible losses that are heartbreaking, but those will not overthrow a country. You know, January 6th is another matter. But, Mm. you know, the stuff that we really have to worry about is climate change and a meteor strike and, you know, this and a pandemic and things like this that we don't put money in. We took all that money. We said, screw hurricane research. (laughs) Well, you know, let's (laughs) put that into stopping, you know, uh, guys wearing turbans.
1: Well, again, like you say, I'm I'm, I'm still aware of the time. But this again, it comes down to who where where the lobbying is. You know, um, what do they call it? Sort of the industrial military complex has got way more influence in, in government in both our, our countries, in both America and Britain, than the scientific community. Like the scientific community, the banging at the door, going like, look, we have evidence that these things are going to happen, and we need this help, and we need to do more research. And then you get someone else going, Yeah, but if you give us this money, we can sell more bombs to other countries. And then we can use those bombs to make, so we can make more bombs and we can sell those bombs. And that puts up your GDP. Hmm. And they go, Oh, that's the one I want because that helps our economy. Or at least, as you said before, earlier in the podcast, fudges the numbers to make it look hmm. like the economy is getting better. So that's where the money goes. So we're very
2: hopeful people. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think, we just, I think you and I just got to a point in our lives where we've seen enough governments to know, you know, whoever's in the main office, it's all about the money. It's all about sort of like, you know, it's all lies.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, there's too much focus on the numbers instead of, you know, the real economy, you know, what it's really like for people and, and you know, um, and having the uh, infrastructure to really facilitate new business and new technology. Um, But, you know, um, I I really, I love this movie. Mm. Do you have any
1: final thoughts? No, final thoughts is just sort of, I was surprised at how um, good it was, having not watched it for quite some time. Um, It is, it's it's a great film. I think it's like you say, it's, it's simple yet complex depending on how much you want to put into it. The performances are good. This is Bruce Willis when he gave a shit about doing the right, doing a decent acting job. It's got, it has got just enough Gilliam to know that it's Gilliam without being too over the top. Um, No, it's good. I
2: really enjoyed this film. What about you? Yeah, I I would, I think this is, you know, my short list of best sci fi movies of all time. Mm. Um, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly up there. For compare, me. compare, considering you know
1: it was a long time ago that you and I spoke about the the imagination trilogy and stuff. But the closest comparison to this of those three is Brazil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how do you how would you sort of like you know compare and contrast the two as being sort of like which one would you prefer to
2: watch and that sort of I, thing? I I strongly prefer this one. Um, <laughs> I I mean I'm charmed by Brazil. I might want to watch Brazil again before I watch this one again, um, but. Brazil has that sort of uh, you know the, I don't know I, I mean it's a, fa- a fantasy it's a farce mm-hmm. um, you know this one is I don't think you have to be more realistic to be more serious obviously you and I love back to the future and little Shop of mm-hmm. Wars, but I feel like this is more coherent as a movie with a singular vision yes I definitely agree with that 100% that, that, that this holds to, to get this
1: holds together better as as a movie and whilst i do enjoy brazil um I, I think there's a lot of good things in that film and a lot to talk about i do think it's more of a like you say you roll that i'll probably roll that film every couple of years every sort of like you know four or five years i'm like oh yeah I should we really go back and watch that whilst this is a film like if it was on or if sort of like you know someone was like oh i don't watch 12 monkeys i'd be like yeah actually now i'd watch that again that's 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 a good film um it's, it's interesting to see it in the pantheon of sort of Gilliam's sort of like back catalogue. There are films I have seen and films I haven't seen. I haven't seen every film he's made taking the, the sort of Python stuff aside. Um, I think they hold this up there with like probably like The Fisher King. You know, there's these two mm. films in the 90s, The Fisher King and uh, Twelve Monkeys, where he seems to hit his zenith. And then, yeah. you know, he made um fear and loathing las vegas which i think is good and i really enjoy but seems to sort of like burnt bridges and then after that i think you know i I struggle with the films after sort of
2: um fear and loathing do you think that um i mean look gilliam is a is a brilliant director Mm. Uh, i'm glad we spent this time um I mean, do you think that sort of, like, early Gilliam before this, this heyday that you're you're identifying was a little more, you know, a little more wild Gilliam? Yes. And that, you know, there is this kind of, like, middle ground in the 90s where he's constrained in narrative, but he has the Gilliam flair. <laughs> and then there is this sort of post-period uh, in which he seems... You know, at least the ones that I've seen oh, maybe overly constrained. yes, you know, it overly like, well, you know, this is a job yeah. for Hollywood,
1: yeah, I, I agree. I think the first couple of those first films are uh, they, they still have uh, that that whiff of Python about them. He hasn't quite moved out of that. And you can see it in all like you know, as we said like bandits Brazil, um uh, Baron Munchausen. But then you get like Fisher King is where he sort of matures, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I think that's a great film. Again, one I haven't seen in many years, but it's a film I thoroughly enjoy. And then you get Twelve Monkeys, and then like say you you get him. You know, I think these are the most constrained films when in, in the sort of from a, a, a conceptual point of view, in they hold together, and then he's able to put everything together in making Fear and Loathing. You know, you get the zaniness because you've got that sort of that he's allowed to do because of the because of what he's filming, and he gets the cast and he gets everything and it works. And it's it's actually a really good film, and then after that he's like, right, I can do that again, and Hollywood sort of goes, no, you can't, and he there seems to be this collision course constantly, um, and then you watch films like Doctor Panassis or um, Zero Theorem, where you're like, I see what you're doing. But, like, it's
2: never quite there again. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the way I feel about Dr. Parnassus. Um, mm. You know. Yeah, and those don't seem corporate movies. Like, they don't seem mm. like he's the the British Burton. You know, like, the guy who you, you're like, oh, this is a zany movie. Let's hire him to do this yeah. property. They're still idiosyncratic properties. I mean, he's not... Gilliam's not doing, you know, um, Marvel movie 32 or something, mm. you know, but I admire what he's doing, but it doesn't quite hit on all cylinders.
1: No, it's never the quite the same. And I wonder if it's sort of, is there a bitterness or a, you know, I don't know. There's something that sort of seems to even dampen his own flame. Oddly enough, he was asked, he was actually approached if he wanted to do the first couple of Harry Potter films,
2: mm. that would have been a very different <laughs> Experience, <laughs> but no, um, well, I think that's a good matchup, though. Uh, yes, maybe. Well, a brilliant we, director. I'm glad. He is. No, yeah, and maybe we might
1: revisit him at some point. I think Zero Theorem is another sci-fi film we we could discuss as a later Gilliam. We'll see about that. Absolutely. um <laughs> It's interesting. It's been a while again since I saw, I saw it when it first came out. and I was like, yeah, right. I haven't got the room to think about that. Right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, Julian, as always, thank you very much uh, for, for coming to talk to me About uh, 12 Monkeys I've really enjoyed the, this conversation And it's a great film, and I'm glad we've sort of gone through The whole Gilliam uh, back catalogue for this uh, But next, on the next Episode We're there, we're, we're jumping back into uh, Our full-on bonus Episodes, we're going to be jumping into the blue box With the crazy man And we're going to be chat starting with uh, The Hartnell Doctor Doctor uh, and the first story is going to be the Aztecs, and this is starting our Doctor Who classic era Doctor Who retrospective. Um, so come and join us for that. That's going to be a doozy. Um, but for now, um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, come and check us out. Uh, if you want to talk to us, if actually I tell you what, if you're an astrophysicist and you want to come talk to us about um, time quantum travel theory. and what in quantum theory. Uh, at pod time space if you can do it in 120 characters you know amazing uh, <laughs> if not seriously drop us a line because i would definitely like be interested to talk to you be fantastic with and, and oddly sort of i think it fits it as a bonus episode um and obviously we've got the other sister podcast 20th century geek as a sort of uh, is, you know, it's me off doing a uh, different thing go check that out there it's at 20th century geek and also our Patreon. If you really like what we're doing, firstly, go leave a review on all the podcast catchers that we're on. Go leave a review. Four stars, five stars. Appreciate all the feedback. Um, and it's, it's it's wonderfully appreciated. Um, but also we have a Patreon. Uh, www.patreon.com slash 20 to zero cg media and on there uh, we do a weekly podcast called trekking through the uh, the twilight zone this is me and julian discussing each and every episode of the twilight zone i have a monthly podcast called 30 minute thoughts which is me giving my thoughts on random pop culture com- uh, topics and a quarterly podcast which is creators corner which i speak to uh, different creators from different areas of the creative arts about why they do their things and what they do um but it's all worth it some great hours and hours of content on there some fantastic stuff so go and check that out all for reasonable prices um a link will be in the thing below Uh, but julian any final things to mention
2: no uh, i'm i think this is uh this has been great and i'm looking forward to the doctor who and um i would also encourage people to check out the patreon um you know we really love doing this and um you know are are glad when you can participate mm. or even if it's spread the word on twitter you know reviews, yes. we we love it thank you so much for listening yes
1: excellent guys thank you very much and we shall see you in the blue box on the next episode